Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today, we have a remarkable guest and a remarkable conversation to share with you here on Deep Background. I was fortunate enough to have a wide-ranging conversation with Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik is the co-founder of Ethereum, which you may have heard of as the other extraordinarily popular cryptocurrency and a broader blockchain that is a complex distributed computer network on which it is possible to build all sorts of different applications. Vitalik has contributed centrally to creating an enormous infrastructure and a tremendous amount of wealth. And unsurprisingly, that's made him into a kind of folk hero of the crypto world. Oh, and I may have forgotten to mention this, Vitalik is all of 27 years old. Vitalik is a kind of public intellectual of the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. He has a blog where his posts are more like fully crafted, well thought out essays. This blog, which you can find at vitalik.ca, 
turns out to be one of the most extraordinary resources you can imagine for anyone who, like me, is trying to make sense of this new and complex set of developments in the world around blockchain. What inspired me to ask Vitalik to come on the show was a particular post or essay on his blog about the nature of legitimacy. Legitimacy is a central concept in government, a central concept in constitutions, a central concept in property law. And I was stunned and amazed to see how central Vitalik himself made it to the whole structure of the blockchain and of cryptocurrency. I really wanted to delve deeper into his idea and to how it relates to the entire system of crypto. And Vitalik graciously agreed to come and talk about exactly that topic. Vitalik, thank you so much for being here. Sure. I really appreciate your work because I see you as somebody who is simultaneously a creator and inventor of things and also a public intellectual of those same things. And I was extremely struck by one of the many fascinating posts that you put on your blog. And they're really, I mean, most people would publish them as essays in magazines. You put them up on your blog, so that makes them easily accessible, about legitimacy. And in particular, about the idea that legitimacy is a scarce resource and something that uh, we need to think very seriously about in the context of the blockchain. It grabbed my attention because my day job is being a constitutional law professor, and so what I do is I think about legitimacy 24-7-365, and I was fascinated to see the ways that you were engaging with the topic. So I wonder if we could start maybe with your working definition of legitimacy, and then from there, I want you to talk to us about your leading and really fascinating example that you uh, give in the essay, which is the great parable of steam and hive. So maybe let's start by what you mean by legitimacy. Uh, sure. Uh, so the thing that I use uh, the word legitimacy to uh, refer to is this idea that there are these collective patterns of behavior where people all um, act in a particular way. So they play a part in enacting and participating in some particular outcome, basically because there exists this kind of collective idea in, every, in everyone's heads that this outcome is like it or not, it is a thing that's happening uh, and everyone is okay with going along with it, right? So basically, it's this sort of self-referential concept that, you know, there's a lot of different situations in the world where the thing that is in everyone's interests is to just sort of play along with the same game that everyone else is playing, right? So like if uh, everyone else is driving on the left side of the road, it makes a lot of sense for you to drive on the right side of the road. If everyone else is driving on the left side of the road, it makes sense for you to drive on the left side of the road, even if there aren't any police around enforcing the rules, it would still uh, mostly work. And, uh, you know, even if like you personally have some slight preference for one direction or the other, it's still in your interest to uh, just sort of go along with uh, the strategy that everyone else is going along with. And I think that this is something that like, goes beyond uh, very simple examples like that. I think it's a uh, an extremely important uh, concept in just social relations in general, right? And I gave a few examples of this uh, kind of both on the blockchain and off. So just starting with a couple of off the blockchain examples, like language is one good example, right? Like, uh, you know, we argue whether or not a dolphin is a fish, right? You know, a version of English where a dolphin is a fish would work totally fine. A version of English where a dolphin isn't a fish would also work totally fine. But, you know, even more important than uh, getting the, the right answer is just the facts that we agree on an answer. National borders are also another le example of uh, legitimacy, right? Like if uh, 
aliens came in tomorrow and they yeah, kind of edited all our brains and uh, they get to make us all think that, say, the border between the U.S. and Canada is five kilometers north of where it is today. Well, you know, the world will just keep on going, but the border between the U.S. and Canada actually would be five kilometers north of where it is today. So governments have legitimacy, systems of property rights have legitimacy, and and systems of uh, rules inside of blockchains can have legitimacy as well. One pushback question before we get to the the big sure. the big parable mm-hmm. in my world. When we talk about legitimacy, we usually build into it a specific component that's in some of your examples, but maybe not in all of them. And you did allude Mm -hmm. to it. And that is not only that this is the game that's happening right now, and it's in my interest to play in this game, but also the component that I think, to use your words, were, and I'm okay with that. Right. So in other words, that's the part of legitimacy that is sometimes called not just descriptive, but Mm -hmm. normative. You know, the am I okay with that? part of it. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, it's a bit of a self-referential concept because mm-hmm. we can ask whether a system has legitimacy by asking, do the people in that system feel okay with the way things that are working? The reason I bring this up, even though it's a teeny bit abstract, is that in your examples of pure coordination games, like everyone drive on the right side of the road or everyone drive on the left side of the road, it literally doesn't matter which side we choose, right? In the UK and in Japan, they drive on the left and other countries, they drive on the right. And you do it because everyone else is doing it, but you also do it because if you don't, you're going to smash into another car. So you're okay with it, but you're only okay with it in the sense that you had to pick one and it's arbitrary as to which one you pick. In contrast, if you think about examples like borders, governments, property rights, saying you're okay with it means something a little more than that. It doesn't just mean, you know, like in a government of absolute arbitrary power, well, I'm going to go along with what the government says because I'm going to be killed otherwise. Such a government might be legitimate if everyone starts saying, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But the government might be illegitimate even if people are following the rules. Mm-hmm. If people say to themselves, I'm not okay with this, but what am I going to do? I have no choice. And then mm-hmm. if I knew that no one were watching, I, I would break the rules. So I just, yeah. I guess, before we give, dive into the concrete example, I wonder how important is it to you to give a definition of legitimacy that could be satisfied without our focusing on how okay with it people are? Mm. No, it's definitely a very good question and a very important point, right? Because people, I think, do use the, the word uh, sort of equivocating between the, the positive way of looking at things and the normative way of looking at things. So like the way that I defined legitimacy in the post, um, you know, the government of North Korea is the legitimate government of, of North Korea, right? Because, uh, yep. you know, even legitimacy. If, yep. exactly, like, you, you know, even if uh, lots of people are really unhappy with it, North Koreans all act like, it's uh, the, the government of North Korea. I know America acts like it's the government of North Korea. South Korea acts like it's the government of North Korea, right? But then at the same time, I also, uh, later on in my post, I bring up these different theories of legitimacy, basically ways um, in which, uh, or reasons by which some outcome could be uh, perceived as uh, legitimate. And number one in the list, I put brute force, right? And But aside from number one, I yeah, had all of these others. And the, the other theories of legitimacy having to do with things like fairness and participation and continuity, like these are things that we would be much more morally okay with. And I think if I had any point on that question, I would say that like 
descriptive legitimacy and a kind of moral acceptability. Like, they're both real contexts. And I, I do think that they have some connection even in the real world, right? Like something being morally acceptable to the people in that context is definitely something that really contributes to that thing being being legitimate in a descriptive sense, but it's also not the only thing. Let's turn now to this, uh, what I'm calling a parable. And like a lot of great essays, your essay is built around a central example. And I wonder if you would describe to us the, the parable of Steam and Hive. Sure. Uh, so there was this uh, blockchain called Steam, right? It was a trying to be a uh, decentralized social media thing. Like you could have some system for built-in tipping. There's incentives. There's like decentralized content curation of some type. And it was a, it was a very interesting experiment, right? But there was also this uh, kind of political intrigue inside of the Steam ecosystem that happened, where basically at the beginning there was Steam the blockchain, and then there was Steam the company, and Steam the company. Owned, that's not uncommon, right? That happens correct. a lot in, in this. It script, happens right? everywhere, exactly. Like, you know, there's uh, the Ethereum Foundation, there's uh, the Zcash Foundation, there's all these foundations. But the big difference between a blockchain and a uh, traditional centralized service is that in the centralized context, the like Twitter, the company base has the technical ability to do whatever they want to uh, Twitter the service, right? But Steam the company versus Steam the blockchain, there's actually a bit more of a difference. And most of the time in crypto land, we don't really think about this, right? But what happened here was that the owner of a Steam the company decided to sell Steam the company. Now, it's not actually possible to sell Steam the blockchain, right? Because Steam the blockchain is a thing that only exists because you have these thousands of independent coordinating participants and they uh, you know, ultimately have the right to run whatever code they want. But uh, you know, ultimately, like what code gets run get, is constrained by the fact that people have to agree to all run the same code. And if you run different code from everyone else, then, you know, even if your code is better, you're just kind of off in your own little universe and you're not talking to anyone else, right? The blockchain's kind of forked. And, uh, you know, if you're on the minority fork, that's uh, a lonely place to be. So Steam, the company got sold. And the new uh, buyer, uh, the new owner of Steam, the company is this uh, character named uh, Justin Sun. And Justin's son is um, this uh, crypto entrepreneur who is, uh, you know, very controversial and is widely known for doing a lot of things that I personally cons- uh, consider unethical, like, you know, like his white paper plagiarized IPFS and there's other examples. So there's reasons for the community to be kind of very suspicious of him. So overnight, basically, um, this uh, sale was announced and I don't think the community was really consulted about it. And... The, the just, company, just to clarify, mm-hmm. by the way, because I think it's useful for people who are like me sure. who come from other worlds, mm-hmm. the things that he's done that you consider unethical are unethical within the ethical framework shared by other people who operate in and live in the blockchain. They're not illegal mm-hmm. in some sense of the term, or do you think maybe they were illegal in some cases? It's possible that he did illegal stuff. It's possible he didn't. I don't. I don't know. Um, but like plagiarism, that's one example, right? Like I don't. That's not illegal, but that is considered unethical in a context much broader than the blockchain space. And okay. you know, like his Good. white paper did, uh, you know, like copy a bunch of pages of like I think it was the IPFS white paper pretty directly. Okay. Thanks. You know. Close parentheses. Go back to your story. Okay. So basically, overnight, right? Uh, the Steam community woke up and they uh, realized that. Uh, Steam the company, this uh, thing that was supposed to be a steward of Steam the blockchain, and up until then they kind of trusted without really thinking about it, is suddenly controlled by a potentially hostile actor. 
and uh, you know they, they were obviously very scared by this, right? And so they and they before there was this sort of informal gentleman's agreement that the funds that are that are controlled by Steam the company, so Steam the company had twenty percent of all the Steam tokens, would be uh, like are sort of held in trust, right? And they're they're intended for the ongoing development of the Steam e- ecosystem, and they're not just like, you know, the personal play money of, of the founder. But then when Justin Sun comes in, they did not have the trust that this agreement would be honored. And so they yeah, decided to make a move on the Steam blockchain. So using the voting mechanism, the delegated proof of stakes mechanism that's built into Steam in order to just add a rule that says that that account cannot be used to vote. Because like, if that account could be used to vote, right, that's one account with 20% of all the Steam tokens, and that would just give Justin Sun essentially like unilateral rule-setting power. Um, so just to so, pause, pause for clarification purposes, the people who, the other holders of the tokens, mm-hmm. exercise their voting power to mm-hmm. disenfranchise mm-hmm. whoever would be the owner of it, in this case it was a particular right. person, the owner of 20% of right. the tokens that were out there. So. As it were, eighty percent. I mean, it, may, it probably wasn't all of them, but a majority of the of all of the voters voted to disenfranchise the person who held twenty percent. Right. Okay. Go on. That's fascinating yeah. in its own right because of the mm-hmm. way this parable is heading. It is, yeah. So Justin Sun struck back, right? And what he did was that he made another proposal. The eventual result of them was to basically like kick out the delegates, these kind of elected participants that participated in the original move against him, and basically kind of secure majority control over the blockchain to the point where he could not be dislodged anymore. And he did this using like not just funds that he had directly, but he also talks to exchanges, right? Because there's a lot of uh, users that just have like their Steam tokens held by exchanges and exchanges, like they have the private keys, so they theoretically have the ability to vote. And so like he went to a bunch of these big exchanges and convinced them to make this uh, kind of big move to basically make a counter vote, reverse those results and just secure power for himself. Now, again, clarification question. When you Mm -hmm. say secure power for himself, if you asked him, if we had him on the show, sure. wouldn't he say, what do you mean secure power for myself? They just disenfranchised me. Mm-hmm. And so all I was yeah. trying to do was get back my voting power. I mean, leaving aside whether that would be true or not, is that what he would say? I think so. And what do you make of it? I mean, Well, there's multiple levels to this, right? Because um, this is one of those situations where there's like, like there was this sort of informal agreement that the coins owned by the company should like should not be used to vote and before the handover were not being used to vote but then of course that agreements have ended up never being put into stone so you you can blame the community for not being careful as well you know you can blame the original owners of steam for not being transparent and not consulting with the community about the handover i think ultimately like the thing that caused the yeah, community to do this is just that like they yeah, you know did not want to participate in a blockchain where one participant had this amount of power. Like that just sort of goes against what even the purpose of a blockchain is trying to be. So then what happened when he got back the power that he had been taken, had been taken from him? So when he got that power back, at that point, he had power secured in the sense that like he had all of these delegates, he had a lot of coins. And so the only move that the community had available was to do this sort of extra protocol appeal, right? They announced that they would make a hard fork. They would uh, just release a new version of the software. And that new version of the software would 
basically remove the right to vote from, and I think even burn the coins of of um, anyone who participated on uh, Justin Sun's side during the votes. Right. So they made this protocol while keeping change. while keeping the value of their own coins. Exactly. I guess transposing Correct. it precisely. So they decided this is totally fascinating. And it's, it's where your story starts to look really different from what could have happened in a country, let's say. Right, exactly. Um, they said, we're going to go and make our own new ecosystem mm-hmm. copied from the old ecosystem, excluding yeah. the wealth and the power of the people whom we now see as the bad guys, mm-hmm. replicating our own wealth and power, but in theory, in precise proportion to how it's allocated mm-hmm. among us right now, minus the parts that we burned. Exactly. And they did this, right? And uh, for uh, trademark reasons, they had to like, rename it. So instead of being Steam, it was called Hive. And a huge part of the ecosystem actually did migrate, right? So I think since then, the, the, the market caps of the two have actually been sort of pretty neck and neck against each other. So what is your takeaway from this whole parable, right? I mean, you, you know, uh, many influential people in history, religious leaders mm-hmm. amongst them, like to speak in parables. It's a good mm-hmm. way to reach people, but it's sometimes helpful to explain what the parable means. So what does this mm-hmm. parable mean to you? Right. So the, the conclusion that I made in the post, right, is um, that this was proof that, like, Justin Sun never actually owns the coins. Like when we talk about ownership, there's, uh, you know, this uh, concept of like um, usus fructus and abusus, I think is the Latin phrase. Like you can use the property, you can enjoy it, or you can abuse it. Like those are the rights of ownership, right? If you own something, you can, you know, basically do whatever you want with it, with the exception of regulations that apply regardless of what property you're using to do things. But clearly in this sense, like Justin used the coins that were in his possession but he ended up not being able to use them successfully, right? Because, um, you know, the, the ecosystem forked off and he was not able to sort of fully implement the, the thing that he was entitled to implement according to the formal rules of the system. And what that shows to me is that this is proof that Justin Sun never, and even the Steam company never actually owns those coins, right? The coins, in some sense, actually were sort of owned not just by the holder of a cryptographic key, but they were also owned directly by a community conception of legitimacy, right? They were directly owned sort of by this metaphysical object that consists of this set of principles that existed and were maybe unstated and were maybe informal and vague up until that point in the Steam community's heads. And like, that's a really powerful thing. It's tremendously powerful. So now, if I may, let me just say a quick word and ask your, for your reaction about how these same issues are thought about in the context of property law and, and constitutional law, which, you know, think of themselves, you know, constitutional law thinks it's the law of the blockchain and property law thinks it's the law of the tokens, at least in, in this particularity. So in that world, we would say everything that you described could happen in a real existing community or government. It's usually called a revolution. Mm-hmm. right? You have some background set of principles that people think of as the allocation of power, who's mm-hmm. in charge, who are the courts, who do you have to listen to, who are the police? And then that system uses some set of rules to decide who owns what. Um, property law governs the stuff you own, voting rights law, which used to be thought of many, many years ago as a species of property law, because um, they're closely connected, governs how you get to participate in decision-making. But if someone exercises or some group of people exercise a lot of power in a way that makes other people in the system, usually a majority of them, but it doesn't have to be a majority, angry enough to break the system, Mm -hmm. you can get a revolution. And in that revolution, people break the existing structures of power. They take away people's property rights. They can take away physical objects that people have. 
or they can take away their abstract rights, like you know the mm-hmm. abstract idea that they own a piece of land, or you know the shares that they, in theory, would own. That kind of value can be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And because we know that that can happen, we tend to think that property law and a whole constitutional order are contingent, and they're mm-hmm. contingent on there not being a revolution. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking for a word to describe the world where there's no revolution, sometimes we use the exact same word that you used. We say the system has a property of legitimacy, mm-hmm. meaning that right now, no one is starting a revolution who has enough support to make mm-hmm. it into a very successful revolution. Mm-hmm. And we think that all the time we're operating against that backdrop. Right. So in my world, your story makes perfect sense. And we also always assume that it's true even though we might not always talk about it, except when there's revolution in the air. As you were saying early in peacetime, you don't have to mm-hmm. think about these things. So I guess the first question I want to ask is, when you hear me say what I just said, do you think, duh, you know, that's obvious? And if so, why, does it, why did it seem, or why does it seem surprising in the context of the blockchain for similar dynamics to be in play? Mm, again, I'm definitely not... Um... Not surprised that constitutional law has similar vocabulary for these kinds of things. The thing that uh, just surprised me and fascinated me about this happening in blockchain land is that the way that a lot of us think about the world, or at least philosophers uh, think, and kind of legal philosophers think about the world, right, is that you have the laws of physics and the laws of physics are layer zero, right? And the laws of physics, you know, you have guns and bombs and soldiers and like that's what ends up kind of ultimately in the extreme of extremes uh, deciding things. Then you have layer one and layer one is like basically legal norms that are run by countries. And then sometimes that layer one collapses, but most of the time that layer one doesn't collapse. But then everything above that layer one is some layer two. And the way that layer two works, though, is that most of the time it runs fine. But the portion of the time when it does not run fine, what you have is you actually have some kind of appeal, like a descent to layer one, right? Like if a business transaction goes badly, one of this party sues the other party, you know, layer one, the government legal system ultimately ends up uh, kind of deciding who is right. If, uh, say, you have a dispute where the employees of Twitter decide that they're going to take over Twitter servers because they have different opinions about which accounts should be banned, they might be able to kind of achieve some victories for a few hours. But, you know, eventually they, you know, the police get called in and the courts get called in. And like this layer one that presents this abstraction of uh, just always giving you some a kind of concrete final resolution that has you know universal agreement is what ends up being the final decider right but in the blockchain space what we have is like we in this particular context we don't have that right like there's no sort of recourse to at least the nation state layer one legal system instead we have something that feels more similar to this kind of layer one that's that is the blockchain community, and then that ends up um, descending to something that feels like a different layer zero, which is basically not quite laws of physics, but at least kind of the laws of computing and like the practical rules of, well, you know, who actually is running the software, who actually is running the blockchain, how quickly is it possible to convince people to update software. So things that feel like there are sort of aspects of nature as opposed to things that are aspects of a kind of a human made construction. We'll be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. 
This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Let's bring now your big claim about legitimacy to bear on the big picture of the blockchain. Sure. To those on the outside who were, you know, eagerly, like me, eagerly learning about the ideology of the blockchain and its functionalities and its goals and its trans- and are in- really interested in the question of its transformative capacities, a crucial question is, you know, why will lots and lots and lots of people in the future engage on the blockchain? Right? Why will they prefer it to other more centralized options? Mm-hmm. How much of the answer for you is connected to this legitimacy question? How much is it connected to the idea that, well, the blockchain can offer forms of legitimacy for the kinds of things that it does well mm-hmm. or that enables people to do well that are different from and maybe more attractive than the kinds of legitimacy that we're accustomed to seeing in more centralized deployment? Mm. I think that's a good question, and it depends quite a lot on uh, legitimacy. And I think that's true on multiple levels. So there's sort of two different levels that I can talk about. So the first level is that I think uh, the decentralized architecture of uh, blockchains is something that directly can give users a feeling of uh, safety. And a feeling of safety that like the functionality that the blockchain provides is not going to just change on them in unexpected and unacceptable ways. And like one very practical example of this, right, is like if you look at things like Twitter and Facebook, they uh, at the very beginning had very open APIs. And there were lots of startups that built themselves relying on the assumption that the APIs would continue to exist as they have existed. But then 
what happens in a lot of cases is that Twitter and Facebook basically pulled the rug on them, right? Like they just made the APIs no longer work, regardless of uh, what the reasons were. The result was that people, like you had entrepreneurs that just spent years building these projects, but the result is that like Twitter just makes a decision with a, a few clicks and boom, their entire business model is gone. With a blockchain like that, you can't really do that, right? Because uh, even if you don't want to talk to a blockchain directly and you're making a service and it's like working through some APIs like from Etherscan or one of these uh, kind of service providers, like if Etherscan decides to change its terms of service, the blockchain is open, right? And there's other alternatives. You can just like go over to Etherchain and they'll start doing the same thing. And then if someone suggests that the rules of the blockchain themselves change, then that can only happen through this long open process. And like even you can just potentially go in and raise your objections to it. And like it's much, much harder and much less likely for the thing that you are doing to just suddenly, you know, become impossible on you, right? For example, is even just a 21 million limit in Bitcoin, right? Like I think Bitcoiners sometimes like they overstate this a bit and they say that, you know, the 21 million limit is backed by math. Like obviously it's not, right? Like obviously if everyone agrees that tomorrow we're going to run a new version of the client and that client now says that there's 31 million Bitcoins, then like for all practical intents and purposes, there's 31 million Bitcoins now. But in practice, like there are these very strong forces of uh, legitimacy that go against that, right? There's this entire community that basically says, you know, 21 million is the raison d'etre of Bitcoin or uh, like without that property, this thing is not Bitcoin. And there's enough people who just like really fervently believe in this that, you know, in practice, breaking the uh, 21 million limit is just going to be like extremely hard or impossible. So that's one answer, right? Okay, good. Let's let's talk about that answer, and then I'm sure you have more to, more to say about it. But this answer is really fascinating and incredibly generative. So I, I want to say a couple of different things about it in question. Sure. So the first is, let's start with this question of, is the argument basically, look, distributed power, democracy would be the analogy in, in ordinary constitutional uh, design, has some real advantages over concentrated power, like autocracy mm-hmm. or certain forms of monarchy. And so in the long run, many people will prefer the blockchain model to the more centralized model for sort of like the reasons that people prefer democracies to autocracies, which includes the possibility or includes the probability that for a democracy to make changes, you need a lot of people to agree. And so you need this a certain amount of decentralization there, whereas in a pure autocracy, you know, the emperor decides tomorrow or Xi Jinping decides tomorrow that things are going to be different and then they are going to be different. Mm-hmm. So my first question is, is there a kind of loose analogy there such that when people are making the argument for the appeal of the blockchain and its advantages, it has a kind of family resemblance to the argument about the advantages over decentralized governance, namely democracy, over centralized government, namely mm-hmm. autocracy? I think that's definitely a good analogy. So if it is, and that's for me, that's very clarifying. And I apologize for translating your, your world into my world. Um, but for sure. at least some listeners, your world is certainly newer than, than mine. If that's true, then what about the counter concern, which is that, you know, there are a lot of people who prefer big centralized systems of governance. Mm-hmm. And what partly the reason for that is that big decentralized groups of people are susceptible to their own weird changes over time, right? They can collectively decide 
that they're going to go out and do something completely different. And we call that a revolution, a revolution that establishes Mm -hmm. and achieves legitimacy. And it doesn't necessarily do a better job of protecting settled expectations than do the older systems like monarchies and autocracies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think two answers there. Um, One is that I do think that blockchains have more of a do-nothing bias than uh, like sort of built in inherently to this layer zero that we talked about than um than systems of governance do right like if the social layer goes to hell in a country then you know often a strong man does get in power and do whatever they want whereas if the social layer goes to hell in something like bitcoin and ethereum then like often just nothing happens right so that now you of course you can you know disagree and there might still be the possibility that the social layer goes to hell in such a way that makes it easy for uh, crazy things to happen in a blockchain but like it feels like there are these uh, sort of layer zero pressures just because of this coordination problem of uh, getting people to update their nodes at the same time that make it less likely. So I think the distinction here is that like blockchains are only the bottom layer of an application, right? And blockchains don't even necessarily have to innovate much for applications to be able to innovate much on top. And so going back to your point of what if people like centralization, one of the big reasons why people like centralization is uh, just performance and uh, the ability to kind of rapidly uh, pivot and uh, make changes. But applications on a decentralized system can do this, right? Like there's plenty of applications on Ethereum where those applications have internal governance and that internal governance has the ability to like say... uh, completely switch over the rules with a a 60-day time delay or sometimes completely switch over the rules with a zero-day time delay right like you can you can build rules and you can make things kind of all along the spectrum from decentralization to full centralization on top of a decentralized system now what you can't do is you can't build a decentralized application on top of twitter right so that's kind of the intuitive case for wanting or you can only insofar as twitter will let you Exactly. Right. So that's kind of the intuitive case for wanting things that are closer to being base layers to be more decentralized, but wanting things that are closer to the application layer to be more centralized. Although, you know, in the case of the modern state, you know, the post-1648 state, the state actually Mm -hmm. has exactly that hybrid character that you just described. The state is Twitter, right? right? It maintains control, albeit it has a governance mechanism behind it although so does Twitter. Technically, it has the laws of corporations behind it. Right. But then by enabling a free market, the state is, in a, in a sense, allowing people to build all kinds of applications on the centralized platform. And so the state has really hugely benefited in the modern era from this, this combination. So it is possible. And, and similarly, presumably, if you were you know, a major platform, you might want, it might be mm-hmm. the smartest move to allow the building of all kinds of, um, you know, decentralized things on top of your platform, uh, because it actually in- encourages everybody to be in- to be invested in that platform. That might be the winning strategy from a certain standpoint. That's um, very possible, but there there are also limits to the extent to which a uh, centralized state can commit to trustfulness. Like one very practical example, right, is if we look at say centralized U.S. tech companies, like. Back about 10 or 15 years ago, they were fairly fairly trusted internationally, right? And there was this kind of legal order where people could sort of put their heads in the sand and kind of pretend that these Silicon Valley companies were basically living inside of an anarchy and they would just uh, like be able to 
you know, keep on do, like keep on doing whatever was in their business interests. But then, what happens? What's happened over the last ten years is that a lot of uh, countries, like both governments and people in countries, and especially countries that are not very friendly to the U.S., started being much more suspicious of U.S. tech companies. Now, some of that, I think, is of course is because they just they want to like promote local alternatives so they can have control themselves. But some of that is also because like they are actually afraid that if the U.S. and this other country comes into conflicts, then the U.S. government is actually going to rug pull them. Whereas, uh, you know, the Ethereum blockchain, for example, is like is less capable of doing that if, say, an application was built by someone from the Bitcoin community um, and it ran on the Ethereum blockchain. So now you're turning to the last topic I want to talk about, and it's very rich and fascinating to me, and that is what you might call the issue of pre-commitment, right? How well suited are different kinds of institutions to promising in advance that they won't uh, mess things up relative to your settled expectations? And you already mentioned that in the context of the people who say, well, you know, Bitcoin's foundational definition is it's limited to 21 million, and a lot follows from that, right? Therefore, they say um, it's a fixed supply, Therefore, they say it's analogous to gold, which is also a fixed supply, although we may not have found all of that fixed supply. The fixed supply, in principle, Mm -hmm. exists. So what I'm interested in, there are two aspects of this I'm interested in. One, why would we believe that one kind of institution is more impervious to pre-commitment than another if all pre-commitments are just Mm -hmm. based on self-interest, right? So if the people who were holding the Bitcoin voting power chose to expand the number and it was in their interest to do so, they would do so much in the same way that when a government decides that it's in its interest to expand its monetary supply, it has a governance mechanism or multiple complex governance mechanisms, and then it does so. And yet one hears from people in the Bitcoin world, things like, well, that can never happen here. We can't trust states to be pre-committed, but of course we can trust our our institutions to be pre-committed. So is is there anything to that? I mean, I, I have trouble seeing why we would be more trusting of one than the other. Sure. Uh, so I think like the, the important thing is that Bitcoin doesn't have a concept of voting power, right? Like it has miners, but at the same time, like if a miner creates a block that violates the current rules, like even if 90% of all the miners are going along with them, the nodes that are run by users are still going to reject them, right? Although, uh, you're, so, although your, whole, your whole parable shows that they could just hive, fork off and, right. and replicate. They could, exactly. So that's why your article is such genius. Right. Yeah, that's very true. But at the same time, like that action does have a cost, right? Like if it was a, uh, an actual voting system, then like, you know, once the vote happened and 51% um, approved the motion to change the source code, well, you're kind of screwed, right? And well, or, or at the very least, like the shoe is on the other foot and like the burden of overcoming the coordination problem, which is a really, really high burden, like basically falls on the side of the dissenters. But in the case of Bitcoin, the burden of overcoming the coordination burden for anything controversial falls on the side of the, of the people that are trying to make the change. Right. That's true in a revolution as well, right? The, the burden is on the people who want to make the revolution typically. Right. But there are also ways to rapidly change uh, policy in a state that don't require revolution. May I just say about that? Often people who study states, I had Francis Fukuyama on the show the other day, and this is something that he, he writes about extensively, mm-hmm. think that the capacity to make changes legally is actually a crucial part of the anti-fragility of states. In other words, it's thought to be one of the best ways to avoid the decay of a political order to ensure the possibility of negotiating change within the framework of law. And when you can't do it anymore, 
you mm-hmm. get rigid, and when you get rigid, you tend towards decay. So that seems like a, a good feature rather yeah, than a possible. bad feature. It, it's also like states and blockchains also do very different things, right? Like uh, blockchains are uh, like software constructions that are, are relatively are, in, are interacting with a simpler world. You know, states have to deal with just all sorts of uh, problems and they have to act strategically in the face of external threats. So it's possible that the, like, the correct balance between agility and like ability to just kind of credibly stick in, in one place is just different between the two contexts, and that's fine. I mean, the question that I, I want to close with then is one that I, really fascinates me, and I, I see it again and again and again as I talk to sophisticated people in your blockchain universe or mm. in crypto land, and that is there seems to be this impulse towards what I would call almost like a conservative preservationism, a worry mm. that the reason we can't trust, say, governments is that they do stuff too frequently, you know, too riskily, that facilitates the interests of voting majorities and that we need to, you know, draw a line against that. We need to have principles and rules. And in that sense, it sounds in libertarianism, the idea that, you know, we have some basic fundamental rights and we ought to stick to those. And we don't want to live in a world where the government can just wish away our rights. And that makes sense to me. And here's the punchline. But if your account of legitimacy is true, and I believe you convinced me that it is, hmm then I don't see how decentralization in the blockchain fulfills those libertarian aspirations because it just pushes them up one level to the level of the voting members, the people who structure the governance. And they don't literally have to vote. They just have to have the capacity to do what you said in the Steam Hive story of just forking off and replicating. And so Mm. if that's the case, then this world is not worse than, but it's not obviously better than a world of centralized platforms when it comes to, including governments, when it comes to these kinds of pre-commitment to certain core principles? Mm-hmm. I think the main part of my answer to that is that like, I'm a marginalist and not an absolutist. Like I think even if you can't get a 100% of the way towards satisfying some principle or like or idea or system of values, you could still make a huge gain by getting 30% or 50% of the way there. And like, I do think that what I call the the laws of physics that exist in the in blockchain land and the way that a kind of the coordination problems tilt against someone making uh, wanting to make radical changes, even though radical changes are still possible, if they can overcome those coordination problems, just the fact that users run nodes just means that you have to like consult users at all. Like I do think that those things are improvements. I definitely don't claim that blockchains are or can be 100% immutable systems, no matter how hard someone tries to be. I think um, just going back a bit to your earlier analogy with uh, like tech companies and how tech companies like they, they do end up changing a lot. I think my answer there is just that like there are if we look at the tech universe, like there are already things that are more immutable than tech companies, right? And that is programming languages, right? Like Python, you know, it took decades to move from Python 2 to Python 3. C++, I think it's still backwards compatible with what was there like tens of years ago. Uh, So there are also uh, things that are decentralized in that sense, right? And like programming languages are a good example. So the way that I kind of 
I guess, view the way things should be is that intuitively things that are more general purpose and that are more abstract, it's less likely that they are going to need to change rapidly because the goal of them is to be general purpose, right? Like with a programming language like Python, like you can build anything in response to it. Like Python did not even have to change in response to, say, the emergence of the blockchain world. But things that are closer to the application layer, they do need to adapt. There is more need for centralization. There is potentially need for kind of bounded centralization where you include some decentralized components, but they're more to keep the centralized party honestly than to kind of shackle them 100%. Um, So things that are closer to the user can be more centralized, and that's fine. Ethereum, I guess I view it as being a little bit more like a, a programming language than or taking the role of something like a programming language than taking a role of uh, something like Twitter. But at the same time, like blockchains are their own category, right? Like I think, you know, blockchains, like they take some of the properties of uh, languages, some of the properties of companies, you could say some of the properties of states, but they also like they are not each uh, any of those uh, things individually, right? Like they are, I think this new construction that's only really possible now that we have this like all of these advancements in uh, technology and cryptography and like there's a lot of opportunity to build interesting things on top of them and like the legitimacy that uh, blockchains provide by being what i call this uh, kind of credibly neutral environment like i think there's a lot of potential for people to build even centralized services that talk to each other that sit on uh, the same blockchain there's value that you that I think can come out of those things. But at the same time, like I'm definitely not a proponent of the idea that sort of blockchain like designs are something that's intended to take over every sector of how the world operates either. Like I think they're just a new thing that we've invented and like we'll we'll see how they uh, interact with everything else that we've created in the world. Vitalik, you don't need me to thank you for the tremendous value that your creativity has created in lots of spaces. But what I do want to thank you for is writing and talking about the things that you do and the worlds that you're creating in such an accessible way. I've learned an enormous amount from reading your your blog posts and your work, and also just for engaging in this sort of open-minded, engaged, analogical way. I think it's tremendously valuable for those of us uh, who are not crypto natives. And sometime sometime in the future, we can talk about language. I mean, I think (laughs) linguistics as a backdrop here is fascinating because sort of what you were just saying at the end there, the relationship between language and governance, Mm. you know, we do all of our (laughs) governance through language, right? right? But language itself is radically decentralized. There are efforts to centralize it. They never go very well. You know, there's definitional moves. Some of them do. There's something very rich there. Yeah. No, some do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, language is definitely fascinating. Like, I think in some ways that might even be one of the kind of closest things to a blockchain in a historical context, right? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. um, Open source, but with fixed units, with some connection, depending on if you're a Chomsky or not, some connection to some underlying biological principles and rules. Deep mm -hmm. divide within the field about whether these are primary, like there's a language unit in the brain, or whether alternatively they're socially constructed. I mean, Mm. you know, it's totally rich for everything that that we were talking about, and you should write about it, and we should talk about it some other time. I mean, I would love to talk about it. Absolutely. I would too. I learned a huge amount from this conversation, so I really want to thank you for that. No, thank you very much. I learned a lot too. We're in our third season of Deep Background, and according to my producer, Mo Laborde, we've interviewed more than 100 people on the show. I have to say that although it would be a terrible idea to play favorites among them, I was about as excited 
by my conversation with Vitalik as I have been at any time in all of the interviews that I've done. What excited me was to see Vitalik's mind at work, to see its speed and its creativity, and to have the opportunity to play a little bit with him in banging around ideas that have been the focus of much of my own work and that I developed in a context completely unrelated to crypto and the blockchain. And to see that in some potential way, these ideas of legitimacy may in fact be central to the way that this new world is developing. I was deeply struck by Vitalik's parable of Steam and Hive and his core takeaway, namely that on the blockchain and in the crypto space, everything depends on the acquiescence of the participants in the collective undertaking. And if they get up and decide to change it, eliminate it, or imitate it and recreate it, they can do that. This parable opens up some deep and fundamental questions about what crypto and blockchain are good for and what they might or might not be able to contribute to the broader world. I myself am only beginning to develop my thoughts on this topic, but listening to Vitalik made me suspect that the benefits that people are describing as the benefits of the blockchain have a lot to do with the benefits of decentralized governance that we associate with democracy, as opposed to the historically significant benefits of autocracy or monarchy, which are more closely associated in the blockchain world with the dominance of central powerful platforms controlled by a single corporation and often headed by a single powerful founder CEO. If this analogy turns out to be valuable and useful, and Vitalik seemed to think that perhaps it could be, it will help us to see that some of the advantages of the distributed blockchain might be real and significant because there are some kinds of decision-making and some kinds of development of businesses and opportunities that might work better in decentralized ways. Yet simultaneously, there may also be circumstances where centralized governance is preferable even to the users than decentralized governance. And what's more, there could be hybrid models, much like modern governments, where there is a central national government, but that government then enables people to create all kinds of different sorts of applications, like private companies, against the backdrop of the state's ordinary centralized operations. Most fundamentally, however, if it's the case, as Vitalik says, that legitimacy is the key concept on the blockchain, then we always have to keep our eye on what happens when legitimacy erodes, is recreated, and is reshaped. Events that occur in governments, both through gradual changes sometimes, and also through revolutionary changes. Those revolutions may be rare, but when they happen, they move around a lot of wealth, they unsettle a lot of settled expectations, and they can lead to tremendous improvement as well as tremendous disorder. It's far too soon to draw conclusions about any of these subjects, partly because in the world of governments where people have been talking about concepts like legitimacy for at least 2,500 years, we still don't have definitive answers. But the idea that there may be some points of contact between the worlds that we have known and understand and the new worlds that are being created by people like Vitalik is to me hopeful, interesting, and potentially of tremendous value to trying to figure out the world around us. I hope you had as much fun in this conversation as I did. Until the next time I speak to you, be well, think deep thoughts, 
like Vitalik does, and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mola Board. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.